from paella in Spain, bibimbap in Korea, jambalaya in Louisiana. Rice has its place in the culture of food systems all around the world. Varietals are vast, and the grains can be long, short, woody, nutty, narrow, or round. But as with many other crops, the commoditized versions are often the only ones we're seeing show up on the shelf. Momoko Nakamura looks to the 24 micro-seasons to source heirloom varietals and reinvigorate the traditional rice-growing industry in Japan. There's one farmer that I recently met with in the southern part of Japan, and he comes from 100 generations of rice farmers on the same piece of land. And it was only his father's generation that farmed with pesticides, herbicides, and fertilizers because that became the norm then. I'm Carolyn Kissick. And I'm Colleen King. Thanks for joining us today on Sorceress, where we're learning the perspective of a sorcerer just getting started on a mission to teach ancient traditions to a modern generation consumed with the future. Welcome to Sorceress. Welcome back. <laughs> it's Rice Week here on Sorceress, and today's interview and guests are a little bit different than the other episodes that we've done this season. You met Momoko at a Byright event, and if you're not from San Francisco, Byright is a specialty grocery store here in town that specializes on their amazing sourcing and their relationship with farmers, and I think that's really cool. So tell me how this all went down. I had heard of some of the work that Momoko was doing, and I heard she was coming to town, so I went to her talk, and she was, of course, talking about sourcing and her company, and Byright is going to be the first company in the U.S. that's going to import her rice. You know, through this talk, what I really discovered is that she's an activist. So one thing that she talked about a lot is how rice in Japan has been grown one way for over 2,000 years. But then after World War II, suddenly the landscape for rice farming changed dramatically. After World War II, pesticide use in Japan increased in a major way with agricultural intensification and lack of controls in their government as Japan was adopting many things from the U.S. influence. You know, the country was busy rebuilding after the war and some things like the natural farming that you'll hear Momoko talking about started to disappear. Right. And to clarify what she means by natural farming in this context is no pesticides, no herbicides, no fertilizers, and the rice itself should be sun-dried. It also utilizes this technique. That's the Japanese micro-seasonal calendar. It's pretty amazing. Basically, she's sourcing from farmers that are either returning to this style of farming or are continuing to farm in this way. And there's really not many left in Japan. What really stood out to me was that when we were doing research for this, it was difficult to find information on the toxicity of rice farming or violations in the industry, like concessions after the war. The reason this stood out was usually when we get a few pages in on any of the other ingredients that we've done, someone out there is really banging the drum and making this heard. But in this case, it's a little bit unclear of where the rice industry stands on these things at this time. And sometimes that means that maybe the problems haven't been exposed or it hasn't been exploited in a really significant way, or maybe it's a problem in a really localized area, but not a worldwide problem just yet. Was that something you ran into as well? Yeah, it's really interesting when you start diving into like the food science and trade of rice. It's pretty much what I found too. And 
This is a very Japan-focused conversation, which also sets this interview aside. So we're talking about cultural preservation, agricultural preservation, rebuilding in wartime. Rice in Japan is grown in Japan and eaten in Japan. They do have an export market, but these kind of issues might be existing hyper-locally, just like you said. I spent a lot of time looking at other countries that consume a lot of rice, and contrary to a lot of other food that gets shipped far and wide, it seems like most rice actually gets grown in the area where it's eaten. Like most of the rice consumed in Mexico is grown in Mexico. Same thing in southern India. And actually a lot of the rice that we're consuming here in the States is grown in California. Yeah, I know that rice thrives in a humid, warm, long-growing season environment. But just for my travels, I've seen rice on so many tables in so many different contexts. I mean, the first one that comes to mind is Colombia. And white rice is served at every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And it's a staple especially in the growing regions, like it's really a fuel. And then I think of Thailand and how rice is synonymous with the word meal. So if you've asked someone if they've eaten yet, you're really asking if they've had rice yet, which I believe is the same in Japan. And then I think about Korea, where rice is central to every meal, the Philippines and all their crispy rice. Oh man, I really love crispy rice. Maybe I love all rice. I ate a lot of California wild rice growing up here. And now that I'm older, it's it's a great thing for me to make a big pot of at the beginning of the week, make a bunch of veggies, maybe fry up an egg, and that's a complete meal. This is a meal that sustains me when I'm really busy, and I like it a lot better than quinoa. Sorry, quinoa <laughs> fans. <laughs> quinoa had its moment, and then it was problematic, and then, you know, we figured it all out. But what you're saying is really interesting because people have really relied on rice throughout the world to be a staple, which is what you're saying it is in your life. It's sort of their go-to dish for families. And it's usually relatively inexpensive. And Mamako talks about how much people expect rice to cost in the interview. It's a really interesting perspective. She breaks it down by serving. So she's really early in her journey in this sourcing role. She's done the research. She's talked to farmers. She's doing these talks, but she's still figuring out how to get it here and how to get this movement of returning to traditional rice farming going. I think it's an important perspective we're showing here for what's going on with our message here with Sorceress, but also for anybody who's looking to get into the sourcing game or start something on your own. You know, anytime you start a business plan, about 10% of what you write down is going to be how it turns out and the rest of it's going to be really different. So I hope we can check in with her in a couple of years and see where she is and how things are going. Yeah, I'm super excited to see where it leads. Let's get into it. Tell me a little bit about some of the farmers that you worked with. So you had this idea. How did it sort of start and how did it evolve? Did it start with just like one farmer? Did you get a few on board? I, how did I start? I mean, like literally I started by asking people whether they knew rice farmers who farm in this traditional natural way. So I'll be like, oh, I'm going to this region of Japan. Does anyone in my network know of traditional natural rice farmers? And most people will say no. But most people will look into it and will always come back with someone because they're kind of, these farmers are kind of hidden. And the reason they're hidden is because there is a kind of government association called Japan Agriculture and they kind of run the um, agricultural operations and um, 
they but sometimes they're compared to Monsanto, right? A yeah, little kind bit. Of but is that fair? Mm, I I would say that they're more like a they're like a, a agricultural union. Okay. So they 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 were put in place to um, help distribute like produce and grains and that sort of thing from farmers when you know when there was no online communication and farmers couldn't necessarily do that themselves. So they the Japan agriculture would be like the hub to buy all the vegetables, fruits, grains, legumes, everything, and then ship it off to supermarkets and other places. So they were like a middleman, essentially. Um, but now they also make loads of money by selling pesticides to farmers. And so when farmers choose not to use any pesticides, they will often get bullied by this middle middleman. Um, and so they kind of like, you know, quietly farm in the different regions of Japan, which is why most people will say, I, I don't know. So generally what I do is I pick a region of Japan, I'll say, I'm going to go here, and then start asking people to connect me with farmers who farm in this responsible way. And then I, and then I go and I speak with them, and often they're a little bit like, um, who's this girl who's like suddenly coming to my farm? But once they open up about it, and once I start speaking about it, and they understand how, um, how truly interested I am in their work, then, you know, they won't stop talking. <laughs> sure. Um, and then I buy rice from them. I buy rice based on um, the Japanese micro seasonal calendar. So that means that I source varietals that I feel like taste the best depending on the season we're in. So in midsummer, I def- uh, tend to source varietals that are a little bit more nutty a little bit more al dente on the lighter side, easier to eat in the hot, during the hot months. In winter, I want rice that is more like comfort food, more moist, more chewy, more dense. Are you exporting and importing or how does, how does it work? I'm not doing any of that. In fact, I'm like doing this like major gorilla style, which means that people are buying and I'm sending small packages um, every two weeks because Whoa. it's a subscription-based service based on the Japanese micro-seasonal calendar. So it's, it gets really expensive. And even even with the outrageously expensive price of my of the subscription, I'm still in the red because I'm not able to justify the costs. Sure. Um, so it's kind of like a volunteer project that I'm doing. But it's not sustainable for, for the subscriber because it's expensive and it's not sustainable for me because I'm in the red, so I need to figure out a different way to do it. But it is helping me to spread the word because people tend to need a tangible thing in order to connect what I'm saying. Sure. So I'm hoping that everyone who's listening to this now and um, all of the people who come hear me speak can help ideate how how best I can kind of continue to do, to do this. Japan has, I think, the fourth largest pesticide use Mm -hmm. in the world Mm -hmm. and a lot of that is for rice Mm -hmm. and I think we don't always associate that when I look at rice in the grocery store I never think about pesticides Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not sure why Mm -hmm. I I buy organic but Mm -hmm. I don't look at the conventional and really think about pesticides Mm -hmm. and I'm not sure if it's because when I think about a rice patty I think of the water and it Mm -hmm. just to me it's like wow it's so clean you know Mm -hmm. it's one of the cleanest agriculture Mm -hmm. which probably isn't true at all um, so yeah, can you speak a little bit about the history of the generational 
natural farming and then pesticide use and then returning back to the natural? Absolutely. I mean, it's so interesting that you were mentioning that um, you never associated pesticide use to rice farming. And um, I literally just had a conversation with several Japanese people who said the exact same thing. There is a there is a lot of talk about um, organic or pesticide-free vegetables or fruit, but they never really thought about chemicals being used for rice farming, which loads of it is used. Um, yes, yeah, Sam from Byrite had mentioned that Japan uses loads of chemicals in farming, in agriculture, and it's a really um, upsetting thing because Japan is a very small island country, and so um, it's it's not as sprawling as, as it is in, in uh, land-wise in the U.S. So when your neighbor uses chemicals, and even though you choose to use a uh, farm without chemicals, naturally those chemicals kind of come in come upstream into your, into your land. And for Japanese rice farming has been, um, done for about 2000 years has been cult- rice has been cultivated for about 2000 years and naturally there were no chemicals. So it was, it was naturally farmed. And so that's why I call it traditional natural rice farming because it's just the way it's always been done. Um, and only since after world war two, have chemicals been really part of the agricultural conversation? Um, when Japan lost to the U.S. in World War II, Japan was in a position to kind of force to import many, many things. Um, dairy, flour, and pesticides were some of those things. And so pesticides became um, incredibly common in Japanese um, farming practices, so much to the point where um, most Japanese farmers don't believe, kind of have been brainwashed and don't believe that farming is possible without pesticides. And in Japan, pesticides is called medicine, plant medicine. Really? Yeah. So some people think it's like a good thing. It's like, you know, like getting rid of bugs, getting rid of a flu bug. It's kind of like the same concept. But I think most of us educated people understand that, you know, if you're using antibiotics, yes, it might get rid of the bug, but it's also getting rid of really amazing good bugs too. Sure. Which, you know, happens in in farming. And um, rice, as you were saying, uses a lot of water. Um, And so water is an incredibly important component of rice farming. And those farmers who have chosen to um, farm in this traditional natural way without the use of pesticides, herbicides, or fertilizers, try to go upstream as much as possible because they don't necessarily want their neighbors to be infiltrating their water system. Um, But it's very difficult because we're dealing with a compact country. Sure, and so, when you talk about them after World War II importing pesticides, dairy, and wheat, mm-hmm. I know that that affected the diet of a whole generation. Mm-hmm. Who chose those things to be the ones that were imported? Was that the U.S. offering those things because we have subsidies and therefore we sort of gave them as something to sort of subsidize the rebuilding and the growth of a country because it happened to suit our needs in terms of surplus. It seems like it falls into those categories. I um, don't know all of the the details, but yes, I think it's incredibly political. Um, Agriculture, as you say, is sourcing, um, hits on so many many different um, areas. Politics is definitely one of them. Politics as it connects to economics is another piece of it. Um, And I think so, I'm assuming that's what it was. Um, the U.S. grows a lot of surplus, mostly in wheat, 
and corn, I think, and now probably soy. Yeah. Um, and we had a major dairy surplus as well, which actually collapsed dairy industries and other economies because we were exporting and like undercutting. So I've seen this pattern and it's interesting too, that they would choose that to rebuild the country. That actually created a lot of food allergies. Loads of food allergies. Um, I studied, um, I've studied Japanese kind of traditional eating practices and um, eating for your DNA, I think is really critical. And the Japanese have a difficulty digesting. Um, Japanese people tend to have a long, longer small intestine than other races apparently. And something about having difficulty to digest both wheat and dairy, frankly. Um, there are conspiracy theories that um, that the U.S. was uh, uh, knew that Japanese people couldn't um, digest it well, and so by feeding Japanese people these things, that they could kind of control the country a little bit better because people would be a little bit more lethargic. Oh, um, God, that's horrible. But it's like a major conspiracy theory, and I really can't speak to it intelligently, but sure, we'll say that. Sure, sure. Um, and anyway, so people, yes, were, they were getting food allergies, you know, and um, and I think because that sort of wheat was incredibly processed, and especially when it gets shipped from a very uh, far uh, location, um, it gets treated. Sure. Um, it gets bleached, and there's like a lot of chemicals that are put in. So the, the wheat, the quote-unquote wheat you end up eating is not necessarily, well, it's nef- definitely not just wheat. There's loads of other components in it. Right. Um, and it de- ha- doesn't have any inherent nutritional value anymore. Um, so, yes, the school meals uh, went from miso soup and rice to bread and milk, and our parents' generation ate bread and milk growing up. Now slowly over the past 10 years or so there has been a movement towards bringing kind of japanese cuisine back into school lunches but it's 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 taken definitely a really long time and the unfortunate thing is that there have been a lot of kind of genetic modifications with rice as well because japanese people want the most most moist and the most kind of chewy Mm. rice and that that creates rice that's not necessarily in its from its original form it's kind of been mutated to so much so that some young japanese kids are are forming allergies towards rice but it's not necessarily rice that they're allergic to it's just allergies towards these new varietals that have been modified by humans so when japanese kids eat um heirloom kind of ancient varietals then they don't have any reaction at all but I think it's just kind of human nature these days to say, oh, I ate this variety of rice, and so that's why I cannot eat any rice at all. Right, because they don't know varietal. They just say, oh, that must be rice. Exactly. And I think that's the same thing happened to wheat as well. It's like, right. you know, people were forming these gluten allergies, but it was probably not all gluten. It's not all wheat. Wheat is not necessarily the issue. And... And so anyways, I'm hopeful because there has been such a shift in thinking about wheat and uh, great leaders, particularly out of San Francisco, like Tartine, for example, have really kind of shifted the paradigm there. Um, And I'm hopeful that the same thing can happen with rice in, in Japan. Yeah. 
I, I love to just dive into rice as an agricultural product. Mm. A lot of people have never seen, you know, a rice a rice patty, you know, mm, s- mm, seen it on a, on a scale. Maybe mm. they've seen it in, like, Miyazaki movies or something, mm, you know. Yeah, 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 and, yeah. It, and it's so romanticized. The rice fields that you were speaking about, mm. one is using pesticides mm, 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 and the other is natural farming mm. and how different the soundscape mm, is. Mm, 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 mm. And I'd love to just talk about what what is it like to stand in both of those fields mm. and what does the actual agricultural product look like from mm. seed to harvest Mm-mm-mm. um i'm dying for you to come with me to the japanese countryside to actually take audio of those two fields because you're right the sound is so different the sound alone is different i mean the look is different and the actual taste is different and like all of those sense sensory things but the audio bit the sound bit is definitely different when you're in the when you're in a, a rice paddy that is farmed in a natural way, you hear crickets, you hear frogs singing. There are birds that are coming in and like eating the little bugs, and the the visual is beautiful, but also the sound is great. And you see the fireflies at eight o'clock at night, and kind of see all the little little critters across the various seasons. And then when you go into a rice paddy that is uh, farmed using pesticides and herbicides, it is spooky how quiet it is. There are no sounds and there's no movement because the bugs and the animals know that it's a dangerous place. And also there's nothing delicious there. Um, everything is really dead. So it's like absolute, absolute silence. Like you can hear a pin drop. I mean, it definitely looks beautiful in that there's like perfect rows of rice. Sure. You know? Yeah. And so... There is something beautiful about agriculture that's just so sprawling in a very specific, like, man-made way. Yeah, It's almost dramatic. It's extremely dramatic. And, um, yeah, it's like, you know, in, like, graphic design, it's just kind of like straight lines. Sure. You know? Whereas natural farming is a a little bit more wild-looking. Yeah, I mean, that alone, you can tell. And then when you go actually go into the patties, with the natural farming, you can, like, take your shoes and socks off and go into the patties and, like, really feel the earth with your toes. Um, whereas if you go into a patty that is using pesticides, when you, when you, if you go in bare feet, you can kind of feel a little bit of the prickly feeling of the, of the chemicals on your feet. Like, it's, you can... Really? You can actually feel the chemicals. Whoa. So when... So with the chemicals, they're not typically going in anyways. So one, they might have protective boots mm-hmm. or something like yes, that. Yeah, they're right? all wearing like rubber boots. Yeah. And, but you, so what made you want to put your feet in, in pesticide or in water? Uh, just a little bit. Like, like, for example, I've been in waters that a farmer has cho- just chosen to go to uh, change their practices from conventional farming to traditional farming. Sure. And so it's in that kind of like borderline state, the earth and the water is in that borderline state. And so you kind of still feel a little bit of that that prickly feeling with the, with the chemicals. Yeah. So, okay. So tell me about a, a rice patty. How does rice begin? Is it, it starts as a seed Mm -hmm. and then what does the planting look like and what is the life cycle like? So rice, like other grains, takes an entire year to grow. Um, I would say grains and probably fruit are the most difficult because you are putting all your eggs in the ba- in one basket. You're waiting for an entire year. Um, Which means waiting for payment waiting and for waiting payment. for yield and quality 
to know what that payment's going to look like. Right. And it's a very scary thing. Around winter, spring, on the border between winter and spring, farmers began creating seedlings. And most people do it in inside somewhere. So some people use like a greenhouse. Some people use like, I don't know, like a shed. And they create, they plant the seeds in like a tray and they wait for seedlings to grow. Depending on the farmer, they they will wait until uh, it'll look like, like a little a bit of grass. Yeah, like a shoot. Like yeah. It'll look like grass um, to grow, whether it's like a few centimeters. Essentially strong enough that they feel like it'll be safe for them to put into the paddy. And then in springtime, they'll take those seedlings, those shoots, and plant them in a row in the in the rice paddies. The seedlings grow quite rapidly, actually. And then across the summer, like I was saying before, there's just a lot of weeding that happens. And then autumn into winter is when the harvest happens. And then for traditional rice farming, they actually sun dry the bushels. Mm. And then... And is that on a patio? There are so many different ways it's done in Japan, but two are the most common. So Mm. there's like a stacking style and then there's like a draping style. Um, and just depends on the region of what's the most, what the most common is mm-hmm. way is. And so it's long because when I think mm-hmm. of rice, it's so you know it's mm, so, so tiny. tiny. So this is because it's the full stock that's growing, and then you're gonna harvest the actual. Yeah, grass. yeah, exactly. So I guess what you would call like an ear. Mm, okay. Right. So so we should think of it a little bit like corn, like like corn, except for there's many different ears on like on one stock. Sure. Yeah. It gets sun dried, and that t- it takes a couple weeks. But what's what you should keep in mind, I guess, is that during harvest time, it's also kind of typhoon season in Japan. And so you need to pick like the right opportunity to do this. Otherwise, the rains can come and kind of destroy your, your entire harvest. Yeah. So it has to be done like kind of in a speedy manner. And that's why communication with, with your local climate is so important because because farmers who are very intimately in communication with the earth um, can kind of tell when when these rains are going to come. Yeah, I I grew up in a predominantly Amish community mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania, and I a lot of our neighbors were farmers, and I remember being taught really young about when the leaves turn, when it's going to rain, and you know like about cloud formations, and it feels like rain. Like how often have you heard that? It feels like it's going to turn, something like that. Yes. Which is another intuitive experience to be able to communicate. Yes, absolutely. So this the 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 sun drying is such an important part of important part of creating really delicious rice. Most conventional rice is not only farmed using pesticides, herbicides and fertilizers, but then it's also machine dried. So it'll get uh, milled and then it gets into the it gets it goes into the dryer like you, you you can kind of, I guess, imagine it as like a tumble dryer, like you're, you know, when you're drying clothes and it gets dried incredibly quickly. Mm. So it's great because you're creating, um, when you're creating a commodity, you just need to create lots of it as quickly as possible. Sure. But it dries the grain so quickly that the rice gets a little brittle Mm. and it kind of sucks all the juices out. Um, so you have a very dry grain. Whereas the sun dried, it's kind of a low, a slow process. And just like how it's a little bit different to put your clothes in a tumble dryer and then also hang dry your clothes in the sun, you know, you kind of get the smell of the sun when you're 
hang drying your clothes. Sure. Um, and that kind of like delicious flavor from the sun is also an important component of creating a delicious grain. Sure. Right amount of water content remains in the grain when you sun dry. Sure. Um, and is that how you can get a more chewy of what actually the Japanese children want, it yes, sounds. Yes. They want that like hearty, chewy that you can also manipulate with cooking, right? And change a little yes. bit of texture. But Yes, absolutely. It's like that toothsome bite. Yeah. Is definitely a product of sun drying, I would think. Cool. The rice that we had the other night was so sweet and rich and it smelled like dark honey and like golden raisins and almost like milky honey. You know, I was saying like steamed milk with like, you know, that really like luscious. It was so, so good. And I think if more people, and this is true with many ingredients and some many people that we've interviewed is like, if only people could taste this, they would actually feel and taste the nutrition and understand the value, right? Right. And so what are the kinds of rice that people are experiencing normally flavor-wise and what are they missing out on based on what you are working with and sourcing? When people go, so when Japanese people go to the supermarket to buy rice, they are looking at rice that is um, about $4 per kilo. So I don't know if, how much that makes sense for most people, but... Yeah, so it's like under $2 mm-hmm. a pound. Yeah. Yeah. And... When you are even slightly um, uh, understand what it takes to rice to farm rice, um, you realize how insanely inexpensive that is, and actually how frightening, frighteningly inexpensive it is. Like yeah. it should not be that cheap. There's no. something wrong with it being that cheap, and that again has to do with like politics and other things. Uh, and so when you when you calculate that, it comes down to about 24 cents per bowl of rice. The rice that I'm advocating for, traditional, naturally farmed brown rice, it comes out to maybe three or four times that amount, but it still probably cuts a dollar per, per bowl, right. which I think is a great deal. Totally. But for for many people who are used to it being being twenty four cents a bowl, the three or four times you know that amount becomes kind of a scary thing, I guess, especially when you're trying to feed a family um, on a daily basis. But at the same time, those same people are okay spending five or six dollars at Starbucks. You know what I mean? And the, so so those people are not necessarily looking for for quality; they're sure. just looking for what's considered the norm sure and the norm is going to starbucks and the norm is going to your local big supermarket to buy rice sure and i think that you know having these conversations with you and with other people is so important because this perceived value the perceived value across food is has become extremely wonky yes absolutely and i think breaking it down by serving is really is a really, really good way to do it because when you see something next to each other on a supermarket and you say, wow, that's four times as expensive, but it's like, how long is that bag of rice going to last you? And what are you really bringing to your table? And what are you going to have to add extra to that bowl to make it taste like something, right? Yeah. And so I think per serving, that's how I try when I'm trying to justify spending on something new or trying something um, that is definitely more expensive than I would typically have. I try to break it down by serving and then it's always cheaper than going out as well. 
So if you compare it in that sense, then then it makes sense. So are people are you seeing more people making those decisions in the U.S. now that you've been doing this? I know that you have a subscription service. So like, is that pitch are people understanding it in connection also with simultaneously tasting it that it's sort of turning people's minds you know sam at byride was saying that the the game changer is when you can get people to taste the difference right um but because i'm far physically far from most of the people who are participating in the subscription service i'm not able to offer a tasting um ahead of of actually participating in the Oh, interesting. So they have to, unless they've heard you speak and had the pleasure, like I did, to actually taste the rice in person, they are following you and aligning themselves with your ideology and then subscribing and then cooking it after. Mm -hmm. So they don't don't get to taste before. Mm -hmm. I guess that's true with a lot of subscription services too, though. I mean, but I guess this is more dramatic because it's coming from further away and there's more cost involved. Yeah, and it is a great luxury to be subscribing to it because it is awfully expensive and so i think like for example some of the subscribers will give it as like a mother's day gift like yeah that's a great that's a great gift yeah so it's mostly gifting which means that there's an end Mm -hmm. like with a subscription especially with something as fundamental as coffee or with or or rice or you know there's like wine of the month club and that sort of thing then you hope that people continue but i understand that the the logistically the the model that I'm currently offering, it's not really sustainable. Yeah. So I just, I have really have to figure that out. Everyone that I'm talking to, we're all problem solving. Like none of us have it fully sort of figured out. Maybe we, some people have had enough investment that they can sort of sustain until they figure it out. But I think most of us are in it because we're extremely passionate about preserving this and we just help people hear it and then they help us figure it out. You said something that um, is really interesting and that I've also experienced where there's this romanticism of sort of returning back to the land. Who is doing these natural practices right now? Do you see a young generation moving back there or is this is this farmers that are wanting to do this by choice that are maybe like middle-aged because of health? It actually runs the entire gamut. So there are, um, I would say there's three main types. One is the the farmers who come from generations of rice farmers and midway through, not midway through, but very recently, the prior generation started farming conventionally with the use of pesticides, herbicides, and fertilizers. Like right after the war, right? Right after the war. And I think also for context for listeners, these are, when we say generations, I think a lot of times, you know, when I talk about coffee, it's three generations of coffee farmers. I mean, this is many, many more, right? Many, many generations. I mean, it's like 2,000 years of history. So there's one farmer that I recently met with in the southern part of Japan, and he comes from 100 generations of rice farmers on the same piece of land. And it was only his father's generation that farmed with pesticides, herbicides, and fertilizers because that became the norm then. And I suspect that Japan agriculture also, you know, um, suggested that he farms in that way so that he can create more quantity. And because he was part of this kind of, uh, he worked with a middleman, he sold all of his rice to the middleman, but it did not cr- it did not reap that much revenue for him, that much profit for him. And so not only did he get very sick from bathing in these pesticides for his entire career, but he also didn't make much money. So his son, which is around, who is around our age, probably in his 30s, he was like, there's no way that I'm going to be farming that way. I'm, there's no way I'm going to get sick 
like that. And there's no way that I'm going to be putting all of my blood, sweat and tears into this and also not being able to really like live comfortably. And so he went back to farming the way all the, of the previous 98 generations had done farming, you know, naturally, uh, and then also started selling directly to consumers. And interesting. So he actually took a direct marketing approach. Yes. And wow. he has like cute packaging and everything. Wow. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And he likes lives in the middle of nowhere, Japan. And so that's one example, like many generations of farmers. And then, you know, the, the young guy who's taking over, he's, you know, tr chooses to farm traditional, uh, in this traditional natural way. Another category of people are people who just don't come to far from farming families whatsoever. They grew up in the city. They only know the city, but there's a sense of romanticism of living with the earth. And so they move to the Japanese countryside and they want to start farming. Now, those people, I mean, there's no reason for them to start farm with chemicals. I mean, who wants to do that when you romanticize about living in the country with right. all this fresh air and then, you know, you don't want to be bathing in chemicals. And so um, those people opt to farm in this traditional natural way. And then there's a third category, I would say, that is an older farmers. Um, who have been farming conventionally for this their entire career, but somewhere along the way, they were, they were like, wait, this is not the type of farming and this is not the type of earth that I want to leave to my children and to my grandchildren. So I need to make a change. And there's one farmer in particular who I often speak about, um, Ueno-san in um, Niigata, and he is probably in his 70s, I would think. And... A decade or so ago, he decided to switch over from conventional farming using chemicals to natural farming practices. And I really cannot imagine the type of gusto you need in order to make that change because you need to feed your entire family. And by changing over, you have no idea what sort of harvest you're going to have the following year. Right. And... I think it takes an incredible amount of belief, confidence, passion in order to do this and also long-term thinking. Um, and now he farms loads of heirloom rice varietals um, in this natural traditional way. And so many of his colleagues nearby who have always farmed conventionally say to him, hey, look at you, you are like farming this weird you know hippie way and you're still farming and um you are probably going to be farming till you die because you're farming in this weird way and ueno-san he's like what are you talking about like i've never felt better i've never been more happy i wake up at four o'clock rise with the sun i go into my luscious gorgeous patties and i get so much energy from the land and then um, by eight o'clock, I'm back home watching the morning drama series, you know, and he's like, <laughs> yeah. I've just never been happier. And he was like, if I were you farming, you know, with chemicals, I would, of course, had to retire by the time I'm 60, because there's no way that my body could have handled all of those chemicals for any longer. So it's interesting, like people, there are definitely naysayers because they just don't know what it's like to be farming in um, a way that is um, in sync with the rhythm of nature. Yeah. And actually along those lines, I'd love for you to speak to the micro seasons because I, um, I think it's so interesting. I think it's a much more accurate and contextual way to look at agriculture. 
Yeah, the micro seasonal calendar in Japan um, is the four seasons spring, summer, autumn, and winter, break down into 24 sub seasons. Um, so, six seasons per, per main season. And then those 24 seasons break down into 72 micro seasons. So, when you're talking about the 72 micro seasons, um, it's essentially the seasons changing every five days. And I would say, as I was saying um, in the talk the other day, it, it's like as educated human beings, we all understand that it's not like spring, you know, happens for three months and then suddenly one day it switches over into summer. It's like every day of spring, it just gets closer to summer. So the Japanese micro seasonal calendar just speaks to that in a very poetic way. And whether you're in agriculture, whether you're a farmer, or you make clothing using natural dyes, or you're a painter, or you're a writer, all of these people really um, connect with this micro-seasonal seasonal calendar. But young Japanese people have completely kind of gone, gotten away from the micro-seasonal calendar, and some people just don't, don't even know it exists. Really? And so part of me speaking about the micro-seasonal calendar is because it is such a fundamental part of traditional natural farming, but it is also an important piece to remember just as human beings living with, with Mother Earth that, that there's this like kind of literary component to, the, to nature that when you're when you're thinking about it, when you're reading about it, when you're really living it, it just becomes the... Uh, the 24 hours passes in a much more fun way. Like, for example, I used to be not so good with hot, humid weather. And so some of those, like, for example, July in Japan was always, like, such a pain. It was just much too hot and humid, and I never wanted to go outside. Mm -hmm. But now, because I'm so conscious of the micro-seasonal calendar, and you know that that season is only lasting for five days, it's, like, Mm -hmm. extremely ephemeral, I, like... I, I like love it I because that is the only time that you will see this type of flower. It is the only time that you will hear this bird. Sure. It is the only time that you'll be able to eat this particular vegetable. Um, or where it's going to be perfect for like ice cream or like a shaved ice exactly. or something. Where it's like this is, this is the time for that treat. It's almost like reminding us to be now. Absolutely. Right? Living Which, the now. And it is the only time that you will be able to reap the harvest of this particular fruit. And so it is the time to eat it fresh, but also preserve preserve it so you can eat it as, you know, a jam or a liqueur later in the later months. So anyways, I'm, yeah, I love the I love kind of like living and breathing the micro seasonal calendar. One of my food writer friends was saying is, um, or asking me is like in France and in Italy during grape harvest season, Vendage, like so many people, both domestically within those countries, as well as internationally go like almost like an an annual trip Hmm. to participate in all of the festivities around grape harvesting. And so she was asking me, is there anything like that in Japan around rice harvest? And I was so surprised. I don't know if I was surprised, but I was like, of course there is. There's so many festivals and like all of the shrines have like events and there are like specific like foods that you eat and it's like very much a celebratory time and um also people can go to the farms and help harvest and you know it's like really it's really really quite fun but no one knows about this no one no one outside of japan knows about this so i'm like it's it just seems such a shame so part of what i want to do is unlock a lot of that information to a larger 
English-speaking audience to say, you know, come on over to Japan during rice harvest season, which is between September and November, to help out on the farms and speak with the farmers and eat delicious food in like the local regions and participate in all of the festivities at the shrines and that sort of thing. So I would say autumn is a wonderful time to come. And also like the foliage is beautiful. It's a date. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks again to Mamako for stopping by the studio. You can follow her journey online at thericegirl.com and at ricegirlmomo on Instagram. And stay tuned for our music segment, where our music curator discusses the cultural and musical history of the region and product discussed in the episode. And if you haven't yet, please leave us a review wherever you found this podcast. Let us know how we're doing. We'd love to hear from you. Hey everyone, this is Danielle Maggio, delivering you the sonic sauce of Sorceress. For this segment, I wanted to honor the country of origin where our sourced ingredient is from, and focus on a style of Japanese pop music that has recently had a resurgence and been recycled in the 21st century. I'm talking about city pop from the 1980s, the soundscape to one of Japan's most opulent eras. So let's get into it. From 1986 to 1991, Japan experienced unprecedented prosperity, creating an economic bubble in which personal and corporate wealth soared through the explosion of real estate and stock prices. This economic prosperity led to a feeling of unbound optimism, and the technological achievement of the time allowed for such optimism to be matched by unbound opulence. Japanese companies were leading the world in technological innovation, producing the highest quality stereo equipment, cars, and home entertainment. The economic stability of this era led to the upward mobility of Japanese youth, many of whom left their smaller hometowns in search of affluence and a taste of the big city life. Tokyo, Osaka, Yokohama, and Nagoya were transformed into neon utopias. Inscribed into the nightlife of these cities was a new urban youth identity, flashy, indulgent, and above all else, modern. The taste for nightlife was unquenchable, Glitzy discotheques and fancy restaurants ruled the nightlife scene, and it soon became obvious that a new sound was now needed to fill these new urban wonderlands. The response was city pop, a musical genre that reflected the optimism and technological advancement of the era and of the new lavish lifestyle enjoyed by urban youth. City pop, put simply, was urban pop music for those with urban lifestyles. The sound of city pop was influenced by American R&B, funk, boogie, of course disco, with elements of Japanese fusion and techno pop blended in. Songs were primarily sung in Japanese with a word or two of English sprinkled in. Producers were quick to embrace the latest studio equipment and technology, most of which was being pioneered in Japan. Synthesizers and drum machines were prevalent, and digital reverb was applied generously. The lyrics of City Pop were typically apolitical and introspective, 
emphasizing personal rather than communal experiences. This was a distinct break from the folk and rock ballads that were popular in the 1970s, which spoke to spiritual and economic struggles and emphasized social messages. The catchy melodies and funky bass lines of City Pop acted as the soundtrack to the abundance and innovation taking place across Japanese cities. And who pioneered this new genre of exuberance? Fabulous, modern, young Japanese women. Not only did this era see a rise in economic prosperity and technological advancement, it also saw women entering higher education and the workforce in record numbers. And while the social and familial pressures of Japanese society were still very much intact for young urban women, the music industry acted as a space for personal and artistic experimentation, providing a level of independence and agency not commonly associated with other forms of work. These young female artists express their identity in the lyrics of their songs, which often address their own feelings and desires as single women in the big city. Artists like Junko Ohashi and Mariko Tone paved the way for women in J-pop to express their emotions directly and take an active role in addressing their sexuality in their music. The female pop artists of this era depicted confident women looking for adventure, excitement, and yes, love. By 1991, the bubble had burst, like most bubbles do, and Japan entered into an era of economic stagnation. The sound of city pop eventually fell out of the mainstream, making way for new social soundtracks to emerge. However, the influence of city pop can still be heard domestically from artists like Monari Wakita and Friday Night Plans, who recently covered the classic 1980s J-pop song, Plastic Love. Abroad, it's not uncommon to hear city pop mixed in with house and disco in clubs from Berlin to New York. And since the 2010s, City Pop has gained an international online following and become a benchmark for the sample-based genres known as Vaporwave and Future Funk. City Pop reminds us how genres can be inextricably linked to the social and economic circumstances of an era. The tech-fueled bubble economy and the wealthy new leisure class it created demanded an intense sound that fused pop, disco, funk, R&B, and boogie. The soundtrack needed to match the intensity of the party. And the artists at the forefront of the sound let it be known that women were there to party. To listen to this week's playlist, as well as access playlists from past episodes, go to Spotify or Apple Music and search for Sorceress. That's S-O-U-R-C-E. R-E-S-S. You can also access them through our website at sorceresshq.com. The playlists are public, but we hope you'll consider subscribing to our podcast so you can get fabulous fresh updates each week and easily access the playlists. Thank you all so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy the sonic sauce of Sorceress. Sorceress is written, directed, and produced by Carolyn Kissick and Colleen King. Our music curator is Danielle Maggio. Theme music by Black Broke Robot. 
You can find us online at sorceresshq.com or on Twitter and Instagram at sorceress underscore underscore. Until next time, sorceress fans, stay curious.